Are we ready? Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of PC Principal Shit. As the editor, I felt like I really had to come on today because you just keep getting the name of the show wrong. It is greater than code. If you say so. I guess I'll let it slide again and kick it over to Coraline. Hi, everybody. We have a special guest today, David Bach. He's a seasoned software engineer with over 25 years of experience working in both federal and commercial spaces. He's currently Director of Engineering at Living Social, a frequent speaker at software engineering conferences, and an organizer of several technical user groups in the Northern Virginia area. Several years ago, Dave discovered a new passion, teaching computer science and software engineering skills to the next generation. This led to the foundation of the Loudoun Computer Science Initiative. You can find more information about that at loudoncodes.org. Teaching K-12 students computer science concepts through his local school system. Dave lives in Loudoun County, Virginia with his wife, children, and an ever-increasing menagerie of pets. And on a personal note, I would like to add that last month at Ruby D Camp, Dave made the best smoked pork I have ever had in my life. It was amazing. He was very insistent, though, that we not call it barbecue. So, David, what do you have against barbecue? Why do you hate freedom? <laughs> well, thanks, everyone, for uh, having me here today. It's not that I have anything against barbecue. It's just the word is very imprecise. This isn't a, uh elitist thing. It's an engineering specificity thing. If somebody were to come up to me and say, you made great barbecue, I'd be like, like, oh, thanks for the compliment. But when we're actually talking about it, and so many people want to know what I'm up to when they see all the machinery and smoke happening at D-Camp, well, the term barbecue refers to the event, right? I'm holding a barbecue, can refer to the machinery. Uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm using a barbecue. The sauce, the food, it's just too imprecise. It means too many different things. I'd rather say I'm, you know, cooking meat in a smoker or I'm grilling something or you know, I'm making a North Carolina style sauce or a Texas style sauce or tomato based or vinegar based sauce. It's just from an engineering perspective, I like the specificity of describing what I'm doing. And the term barbecue just blurs it all together way too much. I have to say that whenever I travel, I like to sample the smoked pork at every little city that I go to. And um, so far, the best I've ever had was in Atlanta, Georgia. And that feels weird, like being a person who lived in Texas for like seven years to say that someone beat them at barbecue. I'm sorry, smoked pork, <laughs> but it's true. A friend of mine says that uh, in North Carolina, barbecue is a dish. In Texas, it's a cuisine, which is true. You know, there's so much more <laughs> variety in Texas in terms of the meat, the style, the wood, the, everything. In North Carolina, it typically means pulled pork. I'll be in Austin next week, and I will be really excited to try some smoked pork. Well, in Austin, you can also get great brisket, great sausage link. A few years ago, I was there at a uh, No Fluff Just Stuff conference, and we ate at this place downtown that looked like a shack that had been accidentally left there by the foreman of construction after they built all these 80-story buildings. And it was the best barbecue stuff I've ever had. I think my best was this place in Dallas. I don't remember the name of it, but they had the restaurant in the middle. And um, there were a bunch of tents set up in sort of a, a spiral outside the restaurant. So while you were waiting in line, and there's always a huge line, you got the smell of all the smoking that was going on. Oh. And it was just this, like you got so hungry while you were waiting. 
And then at every station and every tent, there was someone there just with two knives and they were flipping the meat and serving the meat and everything like that just with their knives. You bought like a quarter pound or a half pound at a time. Then you finally get to the inside and they're like, oh, how about a vegetable? And you're like, well, there's no room <laughs> on my plate. It was really, really good, but, but still nothing touched at Atlanta. I have a listener call to action. I want to know, I want you to tweet me the best place in Austin, downtown Austin, to grab some barbecue next week. Thank you. Brandon Hayes, this is your moment to shine. <laughs> well, as much as I'd love to talk about a barbecue for an hour, let's, uh, let's segue back to the topic I'm here for. You mean we're done alienating all the vegans now? Well, you know what? That's not quite true either. In fact, the other day I found – now I'm back on the topic – Thanks, Sam. Uh, <laughs> Success. I found a balsamic vinegar that is hickory smoked, and I have been making great sauces with that. That, a little bit of soy sauce, make great pan sauce, or roasted vegetables. You can do some amazing stuff with that. Just that hickory smoke-infused balsamic vinegar is amazing. I can, wow. I can make a vegetarian happy. Nice. So um, we mentioned in the intro, Dave, that you've been teaching kids, K-12, computer science concepts. Can you talk about like how you got started doing that? Uh, sure. That's uh, quite a, a long origin story. I have triplet boys, which are now nine years old. They're in fourth grade. And when they started elementary school in kindergarten, I started volunteering at this program called Watchdog Dads, which is a nationwide effort to get fathers to volunteer at elementary schools. And it's kind of cool. I go, you know, every few months I spend a day at the school where I wander around from classroom to classroom. Sometimes I'm giving a complete class a spelling test. Sometimes I'm out in the hallway helping fourth graders with word problems. Sometimes I'm, you know, keeping score in gym while, you know, dodgeball is taking place or believe it or not, they play dodgeball again. Just stuff like that in the elementary school. And I was really excited when I saw that they had a computer lab. When I saw what was actually being taught there, it was actually a little disappointing in that there was no official curriculum for computer science. They would use the computer lab for occasional test taking, maybe making birthday cards for kids or parents or a Father's Day card, and just in general what I would call 20th century office worker skills. And there were some extracurricular activities after school that were generally a for-pay event to teach computer science stuff like Scratch or have them play with a little robotic toy. But I wanted to do something else. And the first year I mentioned it to the technology resource teacher and there was a little bit of resistance. You know, I was some new guy at the school. Am I going to be around or am I going to bail on them? Is there going to be anything installed on the machines? Because that's hard to install stuff on the school's computers, you know, countywide to get permission and all that kind of stuff. Um, so I just left it alone the first year. Meanwhile, the school got to know me a little bit more. I had helped the technology resource teacher set up some Chromebooks, so they got to know me technically. The next year was the first year that Code.org ran the Hour of Code during Computer Science Education Week and had a bunch of great material up on their website. I mentioned it to the TRT, showed it to her, and there was a little bit of enthusiasm, but a couple of months went by and I didn't hear anything. Then I got an email saying, we'd love to do this at our school. And, you know, it's all online. It's all in a web browser with a language called Blockly that looks a little bit like Scratch. There's no syntax. There's no commands to memorize. You just blocks and connect them together like pieces of Lego. And you basically learned Carol the Robot style curriculum, stuff that's been around since the 50s and 60s, except they did it the first year with characters from Angry Birds and characters from Plants vs. Zombies. So there was all this great material. You said Carol the Robot, and I'm actually not familiar with that. Would you mind uh, unpacking that for a moment? 
Oh, sure. I first learned about Carol the Robot sometime in the 1980s. It was a curriculum that was based on the Logo programming language, which actually had a physical little robot with pens that could wander around a desk and teach kids, you know, a sequence of commands to be able to, like, go forward, turn left, mark paper with pen, turn right, move forward, turn 30 degrees, and even do more complex spirograph-type commands by turning and repeating and repeating and repeating the same commands over and over. Oh, cool. And, of course, now we don't need a physical robot for it. We have computer graphics that can do far better and not have to have physical devices. So the curriculum that the Hour of Code put together was basically on a sheet of graph paper with Angry Birds and Plants vs. Zombies. You had to write a little program like move your character three spaces forward, turn left, move two spaces forward, turn right, move three spaces forward, and now you just had the zombie get the flower or just had the pig get to the bird kind of thing. And all of that was online, nothing to install, and it was a series of 20 exercises that showed you know, first how you use the commands, how you connect them together, then how you can batch them together to do operations, then how you can do loops with those, how you can do little comparisons, like if there's no path in front of me, turn left. And at the conclusion of these 20 exercises, you actually write a little algorithm that will traverse a maze just by, if I can move forward, move forward. If the path in front of me is blocked, turn left. If the path in to the left is blocked, turn right. And just with that little bit of instruction, you can wander the whole maze and find all the flowers or all the angry birds that are around to collect. The first year we ran that, originally the plan was to run it with all the fourth and fifth graders. I actually took the week off of work and we scheduled hour and a half blocks with everybody where each class would come in, they'd get a brief introduction, we'd watch some of the videos that are on the code.org website, we'd run through the Hour of Code material, then it would conclude with a little bit of me showing them some real-world examples of stuff that was not unlike what they just did, where they would, you know, I would show them real code that did stuff, and they could see that the code they just wrote was like that, and give them an idea, wow, this is how computers really work. And it was really encouraging. Real time, after doing it with several fourth and fifth grade classes, we decided to also do it with the third grade classes. So the, I took the whole week off work. We did it with most of the school that my children are in. My children were in kindergarten at the time, so I didn't get to see them much that week. But it was fun running it with all these children. And of course, the Hour of Code continued to get a bunch of publicity. The county was excited. We were the first school to do it. My principal got a little bit of credit for that. And she told me about a program at the high school called TEALS. And I can't remember what TEAL stands for. It's something like Technology Education Leadership in Schools. But it's a program to get computer science professionals paired with math teachers to teach computer science. So the idea is it's a train-the-trainer kind of program in most of the country. It's nationwide, and they offer curriculum. Well, in Loudoun County, that doesn't quite fit because we already have computer science curriculum in all the high schools and decent, capable teachers. In Loudoun, it's more of a teacher-assistant model. But basically, after we ran it that year at the elementary school level, I started volunteering at the high school level. And it was a really odd experience in that I have taught professionals my whole life. I have been involved in user groups. I do a lot of conference speaking. I do a lot of one-on-one -on -one training with people. And my high school students were just as eager and interested as any adult students I'd ever had. And there wasn't a lot of ego or, or weird age dynamics. In fact, it was really awkward in that sometimes I'd be working with a student after school on an assignment, something extracurricular, a little bit more than what was in the classroom material. And they'd be like, oh, I have to go. My mom's here. I'm like, what? <laughs> oh, right. You're 16. This is bizarre. <laughs> it was a, a really weird thing 
to think that in just a few years, my own kids are going to be the age of these students. And in many ways that matter, they are just young adults. And it was really eye-opening for me. And I realized my original desire to get involved at the high school level was completely selfish, wanting to know more about the school system in which my kids were a part, like what was going to be the peer pressure dynamic and stuff that they were going to face in high school. And when I got there and and started teaching these high school students, Students, I just realized how much I loved it, how at some point, I don't know where I went wrong, but I think I missed my calling. I really enjoy it. Yeah, I would love to be able to teach someday. I just uh, wish that our society valued those skills more. And I mean, literally valued. I cannot afford to teach at this point. Right. It's a privilege that I'm able to work at home as much as I do and live so close to my high school. And also because school starts so early, I can schedule a meeting and be at school Tuesday morning and still be home by the time you know my first stand up the day happens mid morning that I can really volunteer at the high school level a morning, sometimes two a week, and really not have it impact my work schedule at all because it's I spend less time teaching than I do commuting for any other job I've ever had. <laughs> so uh, one thing that I think a lot of engineers think of when they hear about these programs to teach kids computer science is a lot of us get up in arms about how everybody should learn to code because everybody should grow up and become a software engineer. Uh, is that uh, sort of where you're coming at this from? No, not at all. In fact, I've seen a great YouTube video of Neil deGrasse Tyson talking about his own children and how he's not teaching them to be scientists, but he's teaching them to be scientifically literate in that by being scientifically literate, they make better citizens. They can make better voting decisions. They can avoid scams. They, they can understand all aspects of society a little bit better. And I feel the same way about what I'm doing here in that I have high school students that are learning to code. Some of them are going to grow up to be software engineers. I mean, th- some of them already are. I have students that have apps in the app store, for instance. Nice. But at the same time, I have students that are learning that coding is not their thing at all. And I think that's valuable to learn as well. I have students that might end up in a career of product management or marketing or any of those kinds of things where they are going to maybe be the end users that are giving requirements to software engineers. And I think just having an understanding of what that job is about is a useful thing. You know, not everyone grows up to speak Spanish or German, but we teach that in high schools as well, because in some way it helps us expand our level of thinking, expand you know the, our skill set in the real world. My daughter is 20 years old, but when she was high school age, we had a lot of concerns about what happens to a lot of girls in a school setting where they're discouraged from demonstrating proficiency with science and math and discouraged from being interested in those sorts of topics. Uh, my daughter did not end up going to public schools. She didn't really face that kind of societal or peer pressure to conform. But I know that a lot of people are not as lucky as we were to be able to put their kids in a position where they can kind of follow their interests without um, repercussions. Tell me you're not seeing that at the elementary school or high school level already where girls are being discouraged from programming. That is a great question. And this is something I'm trying to put my finger on. And I have little bits of evidence that point to stuff. But, you know, we've always talked about this pipeline problem. You know, it's not so much a pipeline problem to me as the same problem just iteratively applied after year after year after year, starting at very early ages. And I have to say, when I do the Hour of Code and that kind of material at the elementary school level, of course, we bring in the entire class. So it's all the boys and all the girls. And the Hour of Code material has gotten better in that over the years, they've gotten 
more and more gender diverse material. Like the first year, it was Plants vs. Zombies and Angry Birds. You know, all the kids like to play those games. It wasn't too bad. But one thing I noticed that first year is that predictably, every class, it would be the girls that were doing as well as the boys, if not a little bit better. Whenever we would have a student that would finish first, it would be a girl. And the girls would finish first and then go and help other people. It just wasn't quite as on par with the boys' behavior with the code. They were always proud of themselves and encouraging themselves to do it. Um, But I didn't see quite the sharing, and I didn't see quite the level of proficiency. You know, we know that um, at that age, girls are better in in math than boys are generally at like the second, third, fourth, fifth grade levels. And I really saw that firsthand. And some of my best experiences at that level have come from girl students, female students. The first year, I was showing uh, my students this little program I had written to play Connect Four. We played Connect Four, and of course, the computer beat the class. And then I showed them the source code and showed them how it was exactly the same kind of stuff that they were writing now, but it was just a lot more complex. And this girl says, oh, so computers aren't smart. They're just dumb really, really fast. (laughs) (laughs) That is perfect. And that is a quote that I've used in teaching a million times. This last year, I had a girl who came in fifth grade. You know, we've done this now several years. And she was like, I do not want to do the drag and drop stuff. I want to type my code like the big kids do. So we found one of the Hour of Code examples where they actually had to write JavaScript. And she wrote JavaScript. And she figured out on her own that in the drag and drop language, we have to drag out the turn left and turn left again to, so we can turn around. Well, when we type it out, we can just type turn left and then in the parentheses, put the number two. And she figured that out. And she gave a little presentation at the end of class about you know, what she did and why she was doing it that way. And it was really encouraged to see students that age figuring out, you know, real typing the semicolon kind of code rather than just the drag and drop stuff. I'm just now getting involved in some activities at the middle school. At the high school level, I've seen there's definitely that peer pressure. We do not have as many girls in the class as we do boys. And for what I see at the elementary school level, I can't explain that. Not yet. One thing I've noticed is that there was an incident in my first year that a male student said to a female student, oh, I think it's cute that a girl is learning how to code. And oh, no. uh, well, the thing is, she she actually took that as a compliment and was beaming a little bit. And knowing a little bit more about the high school dynamics, or it probably took him, you know, every scrap of courage to say something to that girl and probably wanted to give her a compliment. There's that kind of dynamic going on as well. Our adult eyes see that as a bit of, you know, belittling, like, wow, that expectation wasn't really on a girl. I'm, you know, yay. So I actually took that opportunity to say, well, you know, originally this career was about women. And I talk about, you know, the pictures of the the women programming ENIAC and just all that kind of background. And then I show them the NPR article that talks about how through the 80s and 90s with first person shooters and computers really being seen as a boy's toy, that the gender dynamics changed. Those gender dynamics are kind of a a personal thing to me in that I started my career and grew up doing government contracting with the State Department. And I worked on teams where there were just as many women as men plenty of times through the early 90s, mid 90s. And when I entered the commercial space and actually started a company with two women, I noticed that in the commercial space, people would think that I brought a secretary to the meeting. And I was like, no, she's actually just as competent an engineer as I am. And that there was this big problem of diversity in tech that I didn't notice when I was in the, at least not as badly, when I was in the federal government space. In the commercial space, it was a big deal. And that was just around the time that the 
the software engineering community, especially the Ruby community, of which I was a part at the time, really started to take notice and struggle with that internal change. Another thing I noticed at the high school level was that after we had a, a number of girls in the first year uh, taking the, the intro to computer science class, but that summer, a number of girls were approached as females that were doing well in science and technology classes and asked to take part in a nursing curriculum. So when they came back to the next year in high school, they were going to our kind of vocational tech center to learn nursing skills. And, you know, I have mixed reservations about that. That can be a great career too. It's definitely needed. But why are you pulling women out of this other very viable career path when we need women in that career path? So there are weird peer pressure dynamics. There are some institutional dynamics. I'm just now getting involved in some activities at the intermediate school by which I hope to learn a little bit more about the situation at that level. In fact, this is a situation I'm really proud of. I have two high school students that run are members of a cyber patriot team at my high school. This is a national competition that Northrop Grumman is a sponsor of, that you can download these virtual machines several times a year. You have to secure them and send them back, and you get judged on how well you secure the virtual machine. So it's a nationwide competition where high school teams compete about you know, DevOpsy kind of securing boxes for deployment. I think it's it's great. It's really educational. It's outside the normal high school curriculum. Well, two of my students have started an intermediate school team where every Tuesday afternoon, I have 15 intermediate school students that are bussed over to our high school where our two high school students teach them. So they're participating now as a cyber patriot team. There are you know a few girls as a part of that. So that's encouraging. What was really awesome was that two of the intermediate school students recognized me from being a watchdog dad at their elementary school. So it's, you know, warms my heart a bit to see my high school students teaching intermediate school students that were my elementary school students. It's like circle of life right in front of me. It's pretty awesome. (laughs) It's time to thank another one of our $10 level patrons, Dan Sherson. He is from Melbourne, Australia and Dan Sherson on Twitter. Thank you, Dan. And thank you to all of our awesome contributors. If you'd like to support us, please visit patreon.com slash greater than code. And that link will be in the show notes. As soon as you pledge even just a dollar, you will be invited to our Patreon supported black community. So if you want to get in on that and be able to ask questions in there prior to the shows, then please sign up. Thank you, Dan. I'm curious about curriculum. You have your elementary students, you have your immediate students, you have your high school students. Uh, What kind of curriculum do you start with at, say, the elementary level? And then what kind of things are the high school students getting into later as they're learning to code and and stuff like that? Let me start at the high school level, and then I'll go back and talk about some stuff that's happening at the elementary school and, and intermediate school level. At the high school level, across my entire county, we have two classes. One is kind of an intro to computer science. The other is computer science AP geared towards taking the advanced placement exam. Both courses are in Java for historical reasons. The AP exam is in Java. And while I don't think Java is a great teaching language, I think it's a capable language for them to be able to learn something that's going to apply, you know, in the real world for them. The material is really great. Again, it starts with some Carol the Robot type material where they have to build, you know, software robots that traverse graph paper and perform certain tasks. They then, you know, get into learning various kinds of algorithms and doing things with arrays and uh, we get into graphics and, and drawing and that kind of stuff at the high school level. For the past few years, we've organized high school students to volunteer to go back 
to their elementary schools and teach the hour of code. So during computer science education week, now it's not just me at one high school. It's, you know, 20 or 30 students going back to six to eight elementary schools. And that is helping a lot in that teachers at the elementary school level don't necessarily feel comfortable teaching this stuff. The students, you know, quickly outpace their level of knowledge and they don't want to look like they don't know something in front of their students. You touched on the fact that they're learning Java and you don't think that's a great first language. What do you think would be a great first language for high school students to learn? Let me explain why I don't think it's a good teaching language. On day one, we give them a template for what they need to write. And they open it up and they write some code and they want to understand what they just wrote. Well, so what does public mean? Oh, don't worry about that yet. We'll cover that later. What does static mean? Don't worry about that. We'll cover that later. What does void mean? You know, what's this arg string bracket thing do? And it's like 90% of what's on their screen, we're telling them to ignore. They write a few lines of code that they understand. But I think that that sets off, you know, that this is complex and it's going to take a long time to learn. And there's a lot of stuff that you just have to take for granted. In a language like Ruby or Python, where I can type something like puts hello world and save it as a file and run it, there's less mystery there. And I think that is a better teaching language in that I get to remove several steps of complexity, the amount of stuff that you need to understand anything. And I think there are many times in class where I will illustrate a concept in Ruby and then they write it in Java. Speaking of illustrating concepts in Ruby and having them write it in Java, that actually reminds me of one of the ways that I actually got through my computer science education, which was like, especially for data structures classes where I was supposed to hand in homework in C++, I would actually write the thing first in Python because that's the fastest language that I knew at the time. And I would write it in Python and it would take three, four hours. And then I would re-implement the solution that I had discovered in Python in C++ and it would take you know, five to nine times as long to re-implement something I already had. That's really interesting that you use that approach to teach as well. Well, a great example is when dealing with uh, collections in Ruby. I can have an array of values and I can say dot each or I can say dot filter. And trying to do the equivalent thing in Java, yeah. well, you, you can do it now in Java 8, but we don't teach that syntax. We don't teach that stuff. We teach, you know, you have to have a variable I, you have to have a for loop, you have to have another data structure that's going to collect up whatever you're testing. And there's just more moving parts in the Java world. You know, I don't want to turn this into a bash on Java because I think the fact that we're teaching some of my students are, you know, planning on joining the workforce right out of school. In which case, especially in the Northern Virginia area, Java is a valuable market skill. So I think it's valuable that they're learning that. I just think that we have better things that are more capable teaching languages now. And, you know, Java in its day was a big revolution as well in terms of simplicity and creativity. And I think we can do the same thing now with Ruby or Python. I'm kind of curious. Um, I know a lot of people who got their start in software development by having their own WordPress site, maybe for their blog. And they found some functionality that they wanted that they couldn't find a plugin for. So they got their feet wet with PHP. And um, I think PHP in general is a, is a good language. And a lot of people make a great living programming in PHP. And um, I think it's a language that a lot of people begin with. I'm curious if you have students maybe at the high school level who have already dabbled in programming and what languages they've been exposed to and how that translates into the work that you do with them on the Java curriculum. Yeah, so the, the most dabbling I've seen is things like HTML, CSS, maybe a little bit of Python, and then students that have felt inspired to try to write an app 
in which case they've played around with you know something like Objective C or the stuff for Android, which is very Java-like. The, the Dalvik stuff is very Java-like. So there's a smattering of different skill sets that people are coming to in high school. Every now and then, I'll find a student that has just an unbelievable level of knowledge on stuff. Uh, I ran into a, uh, a student recently that I was demoing some stuff to, and we were playing a card game called Set. Actually, you might have seen it at Ruby D Camp, Sam. And um, I use that now to teach some concepts about, you know, game board evaluation and some great stuff like that. And I have a student that looked at that and said, actually, I wouldn't do that in an object-oriented language at all. That seems more functional to me. And I was blown away that there was any kind of understanding of those concepts at that level. That pretty much covers a high school. Um, can you go back to the intermediate school, elementary school level curriculum? Sure. At the intermediate school most of the kinds of things that are happening in my county are extracurricular, classes that are run after school. There is one high school that's teaching classes they call CAMS, coding at middle school, and that's mostly scratch stuff. In fact, I am going to be at an event in just a couple of weeks at a middle school when actually I'm going to see presentations by students on on what they're learning. And there's a hope that that material can spread across all of the intermediate schools. Because, you know, at the, I mentioned the little bit we're teaching at the elementary school level. They get to the intermediate schools and they hope for that kind of exposure. And the students that are learning that are going to get to the material that we have at high school and be like, that's it? Really? You're teaching me this material again? So I think teaching the CAMS material across all of Loudoun will raise the bar for the educational material at the high school level quite a bit. Can you talk about what Scratch is for those who aren't oh. familiar with that? Sure. Scratch is the language that is, uh, the, I mean, it looks like any other common language these days, the Nicholas Worth style syntax. But instead of actually typing it out, they are colored blocks that you drag onto a workspace and they click together like little Lego brick. So there's actually a little physical click sound. It is impossible to make a syntax error because of the way that blocks connect and the shapes that they have together. And you basically use these scripts to automate actors on a stage. For instance, one of my sons wrote a game where he controls the little cat with the keyboard so you can move the cat left and right and watermelons fall from the top of the screen. <laughs> when a watermelon hits the ground, the game is over. So you That's have happened to, to me in real life. <laughs> yes, exactly. So you have to move the cat over to make the watermelon bounce off your head. And he keeps increasing the difficulty of the game by having more and more watermelons that you have to juggle back and forth and bounce off your head. And it's really neat because each one of these little scripts is just a little bit of code attached to that graphic. And each little bit of code is understandable, but then the whole thing animates together onto the stage and generates a complexity that you don't necessarily see from the little bits of code. But it's great because instantly you know, the students can learn enough to write a game. And you know, keep, then they have to learn about keeping score and all that kind of stuff. And I think that is a barrier to CS education at that level. It's not like it was where I, when I was a kid, where you could, you know, go down to the bookstore and buy a, a book with, you know, 20 pages of code in it and sit there for an afternoon typing the code in just to be able to play, you know, Hunt the Wumpus or a guessing number game. They want something with a more, you know, a richer graphical experience. And Scratch really gets to that quickly. It's a really great tool to get students engaged. Do you find that games are a great entry point for programming? Yeah, I think children want to play with what they know. And what holds their interest is games. And even with my own kids, I started with this cynical view of educational games, but I've seen some great gamification that teaches children all kinds of concepts. 
And I think that starting with some kind of expectation that they can write their own game is a great way to introduce kids to the idea. My daughter got into playing Minecraft and I look at her and I watch it. She is seven and a half. I have no idea what she's doing and I have no idea. Does that even relate to programming? I've heard it does. It can. Minecraft is a great entryway. Minecraft has taken the educational world by storm in, in many ways beyond programming. Of course, you know, at its heart, it's just another first perspective run around the world game. It's also kind of an immersive Lego game. It can simulate a lot of the same kinds of learning that playing with Lego does, except you're immersed in the environment, and when it turns nighttime, the environment tries to kill you. (laughs) So there's some great concepts just in the physicality of the Lego-ness of the game. Now, outside of computer science, it's used to, you know, replicate just some math concepts like geometry, or I've seen things like the Parthenon recreated and kids get to wander around that. And it's some neat experiences like that in a blocky style game. What really impressed me with Minecraft, though, was the notion of the redstone in the game, which is basically computer circuitry. Yeah. Yeah. I've seen, you can find YouTube videos where people have written like complete simulations of microprocessors from the 1980s in Minecraft Redstone. My own son made a little thing with Redstone where he, uh, well, uh, well, you imagine I have three boys, right? They set traps for each other all the time. Well, he'll do things with Redstone <laughs> where he'll start up Minecraft, create a situation in this world where the Redstone is going to like cause explosions and you step on this pressure plate and it triggers something falling on you or arrows shoot at you or whatever. And then he'll leave the person set in the trap and turn off the game. So when their brothers come back to play, they turn it off and they're in the middle of a trap. So there's some really neat things you can do there. And you can build really, really complex with redstone and levers and, and pistons. And I've seen calculators built in Minecraft. It's pretty cool. Right. And just to sit there and watch how it works. It's, it's pretty amazing stuff. And then, of course, once students want to start modifying Minecraft itself, you have to learn a language like Java to be able to write plugins for the game. There are a couple of books out on that as well. So Dave, as um, many of our listeners know, if you contribute to the Greater Than Code podcast at patreon.com slash greater than code, you get access to a community Slack channel. And one of the channels that we have in that Slack community is guest questions. So we actually have some questions for you if you're ready to answer those. I'm ready. I'm also proud to be a contributor. Great. Thank you so much. Yes, thank you. Darren Wilson asks, K-12 is a pretty broad age range. How do you tailor the curriculum for different ages? Are you th- do you find that there are things you can teach to older kids that definitely don't work with younger kids? And you touched on some of this in the curriculum, but... Yeah, I can give some really good examples of that. Of course, uh, the first thing is that because I'm working so much through the school system, um, the students are already grouped into ages you know, by class. So I'm dealing with a group of any one students that are pretty well set in that age. That's not true of some of the extracurricular stuff I do at libraries, which I can talk about as well. But I'm generally working with a group of third graders or a group of fourth graders, that kind of thing. Or, you know, a group of high school students, which tend to be 10 through 12. Not many freshmen take the course. And one thing we've noticed is that, especially with the Hour of Code material, the way they've adapted that over the years to approach to different levels and interests, there is even curriculum now down to the kindergarten level where they use arrows to be able to drag and drop and connect arrows together into these little scripts to be able to program stuff. At the next level, when students can read, we found that they often could not put themselves in the perspective of the character. So I couldn't say turn left and move forward. You know, if I were facing north and turn left and move forward, they didn't always get why now I was now moving west. Right. So the scripting language at that level tends to say move up, move down, move left, move right. 
And the, about the third grade level, they get the idea of, I can imagine myself that character and have that character turn left. And about the fourth grade level, they understand not just turning left and turning right, but the notion of 30 degrees and 60 degrees. And when you can do degrees like that and looping, you can start to do spirograph type graphics. And it's really neat to see, you know, their little minds bootstrap through all of these levels. And, you know, now I'm seeing intermediate school students struggling with the concept of a virtual machine. When they really get that, they're just blown away that, wow, it's like a computer, but it's like a fake computer. And I can download it and I can copy it and I can give it to my friends. And it's just really neat to see the mental acuity and steps as they bootstrap. Although I've taught concepts like recursion using the Towers of Hanoi game down to kids as young as fourth grade. I think that when children are ready to accept abstract thought, we don't give them enough credit for what they're able to understand at young ages like that. How can we tell when our children are ready to understand abstract thought? Um, that's a great question. And even before I was involved in this, I read this book called What's Going On in There. It was basically the the mental development of children up until about fifth grade. And uh, I got some expectations of what to expect from my own children. And I mean, no two children are alike. And I see that you know, maybe more than most parents, because I have three children that are exactly the same age. And I can see, you know, the one that's a little better at sports, the one that's a little better at spelling and, you know, every, every kid's unique. But I think, again, I'm going to plug the uh, material that's available at code.org. They have really tuned that well to different age ranges where children can self-select where they're comfortable learning, what they want more of. Some students are going to be ready to dive into typing their own code. Some students might have trouble reading and need the arrow-based language instead of the word-based language. There's enough material there based on age range to be able to select what your kids learn and how concepts are represented. That kind of ties into a question by Jacob Sobel, who asked, how do you handle multiple skill levels? And how can you set a culture where kids who know a little more won't intimidate those who are relatively or completely new? So the biggest place where I see that is at the high school level where, you know, we, we get 20, 25 kids in a classroom. Some of them, it's their first time ever working outside of a, you know, like a word processor program. Some are well-versed in the inner workings of Linux, right? It's a very wide discrepancy. In general, they all start out with the same curriculum. Some breeze through it, some struggle. We generally either have extra material for the students that are um, breezing through it, we'll send them to something like Project Euler or a website called Coding Bat and have them do extra stuff. Some students, we have them pair or, you know, walk around and help like you're a TA in the class. You know, that tends to work really well. I, I don't know if it's just the fact that they're self-selecting into this class or if it's true of high school in general, but my high school does not seem as clicky as the world did when I was in high school back in the 80s. It's really encouraging to see. It's interesting uh, you mentioned um, students being TAs. Um, I had a great experience. I went to a pretty crappy school, honestly. My school district was in the middle of nowhere. Um, we didn't have a lot of tax revenue from property taxes because it was kind of a depressed economy there. Um, but we did get a lot of funding from the state for computers, and this was in the 80s, so that was pretty rare. We actually had computers in every classroom and a full computer lab in the 80s. Oh, wow. When I took my first computer literacy class, I remember the first assignment, we had to simulate a coin toss, so just a simple random number generator, and that was too easy for me, so I made it graphical. I actually drew a picture of a hand on screen, and the thumb flew up, and the coin flipped in the air, and it came down and would tell you what the coin toss was. Very cool. 
So my teacher saw that and immediately was like, this curriculum is not going to be a good fit for you. I'm going to come up with something for you individually, and I would like you to help teach the class. And I can really say that that individual attention is probably why I continued programming and probably why I'm a software engineer today. Wow, that's great. Along the same lines, when I have the high school students go back to their elementary school students, and to teach is to learn your skill in a different from a different perspective. And when I see my high school students teaching and what they see that these kids are capable of, and I, I can see the confidence build, I can see their pride as they're now they're suddenly the adults in the room with these elementary school kids, and it's it's a great feeling for them. So I, I can see exactly what you're talking about there. That's really great. Back to, to kind of the difference in skill set. I don't find that, I mean, there are certainly concepts that, that children don't get until they've had some equivalent concept in an algebra class or a math class. But I think that the larger barrier to teaching kids is when I rely on some kind of knowledge that requires just more knowledge of the world. Like with younger kids, I can't use a deck of cards as an example. Like if I were to ask what are the four suits in a deck of cards, the elementary school students don't know. The intermediate school students might have a chance. Most high school students know that. And so it's useful to be able to have the kinds of concepts. But, you know, if I ask them for the name of the Pokemon characters, every elementary school is going to know that. Uh, that reminds me, it was also really useful with the problems that the Pokemon Go game has happened. I was able to use that as metaphors for scaling and computational complexity, all that kind of stuff with those classes as well. Yeah, going back to what you said about uh, your experience, Coraline, another thing that jumps out at me is that you had access to computers at all or fairly early on, which seems like another factor in what you're seeing at the high school level, Dave, which is that I'm guessing some of those kids who are coming in with intimate knowledge of Linux have got a Linux machine probably in their bedrooms, whereas other students might not have had as much screen time. And over the years, it seems like that really piles up, that difference accumulates. Is that a factor in what you're seeing, or is it? Is there other stuff going on as well? That is a little bit of a factor. In fact, I should mention that one of the reasons why I started my nonprofit was because I had a uh, company that was willing to donate to me a bunch of computer equipment. I got about 20 2012-era MacBook Pros that were previously developer machines, so they have 16 gigs of RAM on them. Nice. And I got about 70 Dell Inspirons from about 2012 as well. And those were not nearly in as good a shape. Many of them were broken. But I was able to fix and patch and turn the machines and had a couple of high school students volunteer this summer to help clean them up and remove stickers and stuff and managed to get two classrooms worth of computers out of those and then about 10 loaners that I've given out to some students as well. The county I live in, I have to admit, is you know a bit privileged. Loudoun County is one of the uh, richest counties in the country. Uh, but it, we're kind of in this weird place where – we're right next door to Fairfax County, which has a fantastic magnet school program. There are students learning things in high school there that I don't think people learn in college in terms of computer science degrees. There's literally a magnet school there that offers a college curriculum in computer science. Oh, and then being in Virginia, there are plenty of counties that don't have anything, right? They're bootstrapping, trying to find blackboards for the schools. So there are companies that want to bet on a winner. They bet on Fairfax County. There are companies that want to you know, do the most good, and they give resources to some of the more disadvantaged counties. Loudoun County is kind of in the middle in being you know, fine in second place, but what it means is that the disadvantaged students in our county are more at a disadvantage 
because they're not getting a lot of the kinds of assistance that they might get if they were in a county that was getting better support, better corporate support, donation support. I have to interject that it's really fucked up that um, the quality of education you get is based on property tax value. That's ridiculous. It's yeah, that just angers me so much. Yeah, and there's another nonprofit in Virginia called Code Virginia that is trying to raise the bar for computer science education across the state, which I think is fantastic. And, you know, I decided rather than try to bite off more than I can chew to try to just focus right on my county. And, you know, so I've been able to make a big difference with some disadvantaged students in my county as well, give them computer equipment that they otherwise wouldn't have access to. Um, Speaking of equipment, our last question comes from Ben Hamill. He asked, how do you deal with equipment? Not every kid rolls up with Arch Linux installed on a MacBook Air, presumably, at least for as long as developers are still going to be using MacBook Airs and <laughs> until they escape to another system. <laughs> so the first thing is that by working within the school system, the schools often have equipment already. And while much of the equipment the students have access to, we can't install stuff on, plenty of them do have computer labs you know, for software or for computer science where we can install stuff or where appropriate tools are installed. So that's a great leveling platform in that there are resources available at school. We have great resources through our county as well. In fact, the Loudoun County Public Library actually has a subscription to O'Reilly Safari. So I can point my kids towards O'Reilly technical books and they can look stuff up in those, which is fantastic. So that settles some of the differences. Through the computer donation that I got, I've been able to give several students computers that they otherwise wouldn't have access to. There's always going to be, you know, the the wealthier student that has access to, you know, every electronic device imaginable. But I think once they have some base level of access, that's enough to learn, you know, the skills of software engineering. I mean, available for free to use in our library is more computing power than, you know, existed when we put men on the moon. So there's plenty of resources there for people to learn this. Do you feel like that kids can use tablets just as well as a computer? Or do they need specifically a computer with a keyboard? Or would something like a tablet suffice? Well, so that gets into kind of a a division between what's computer science and what's computational thinking. I think that on things like the iPad and, and other tablets, there are some great applications for computational thinking and learning some basics of computer science. In fact, I could get up my iPad and look at a few. I think that for the kinds of things that we often think of when we talk about real software engineering skills, where I want to write some code, compile it, and end up with an executable that I might want to put on something and give to somebody else, the tablet space just isn't there for that part of the skill set. But absolutely, in the computational thinking realm and the basics of software engineering, a lot of the kinds of things I'm talking about, Scratch, Blockly, Hour of Code, is all possible on an iPad. So some of the apps I use with my own kids for developing on my iPad um, is one called Robozzle, which is kind of a functional language that has to do with moving shapes around the screen. There's one called Roblox, which I learned about from a high school student who had written his own Minecraft game. It looks a little bit like Minecraft, but you actually have more control over the physics of the universe with Roblox. Uh, There's Move the Turtle, which is a lot like the Turtle Graphics stuff I was talking about before and the stuff with Carol the Robot. And then there's a game that, while not necessarily about coding, is about computational thinking and specifically algebraic concepts called Dragon Box, which 
teaches kids the basics of algebra, like balancing and canceling and refactoring equations uh, by talking about dragons and different kinds of animals and eating each other. And it's really a powerful, powerful metaphor uh, for teaching those concepts. That sounds really cool. I can't wait to check some of those out because my daughter is just one of the kids that I'm not at the place where I can just hand her my computer that I use for work and be confident that it's going to come back in one piece. So I do let her play around <laughs> on, a t- on a tablet. So I'm really excited to take a look at those resources. Thank you. Very cool. Another thing I'm a big fan of are games and particular kinds of board and card games where it's a game of perfect information. So it's not like poker where you hide cards and you don't know what the other person's holding, but a game like Checkers or Connect Four is a great one where all the pieces are out there to be seen, turn-based game uh, where there's very little randomness. You know, There can be a deck of cards that, that are shuffled and people draw cards, that kind of thing, but not something so random like shoots and Ladders that it's just entirely the roll of the dice that make the, the point of the game. Something where you actually have to evaluate the state of the board and what the other person's move would be. Any game like that is fantastic in terms of just expanding your computational thinking skills. Very cool. Hey, listeners. Yes, you. I'm talking to you. If you like this show, uh, it would really help us a lot if you would take a few moments to go over to iTunes and leave us a review. Uh, We've set ourselves a possibly uh, quixotic goal to uh, get ourselves in the new and noteworthy list, uh, and your review would really help us out with that. Thanks. So um, before we wrap up, Dave, I think it's really great that you are so involved in your local community and in your county with these programs and these curricula and your own nonprofit. I find that really inspiring. So how can other people, how can our listeners get more involved in their communities to make a difference in this space? If you're listening and you're in Loudoun County, you can always contact me and I can help align you with some stuff. I have some volunteer opportunities where people are asking me for help right now. Um, But wherever you are, reach out to your schools and look for programs like the Watchdog Dad program that I mentioned earlier. Look for your local parent-teacher association. You know, if you volunteer with them, they may have opportunities for you. Look for that website, that tealsk12.org that I mentioned, the the Teals um, volunteer opportunity at the high school level. Um, But even if there's not any formal program like that to get involved with, you know, reach out to your local school, talk to the principal or talk to a math teacher and say, hey, I have some software engineering skills. Is there a way I can help? You know, your local Boy Scout or Girl Scouts. In particular, we were talking about gender disparity earlier. I think that uh, where the Boy Scouts have three different merit badges that have to do with technology in one way or the other, the Girl Scouts don't have anything quite equivalent. But yet they have merit badges on things like eating for beauty. <laughs> so We have one. And as you said before in the beginning of the show, that it's the very, you know, make your mama birthday card with Microsoft Paint. It's very, very disappointing. Right. So I I was uh, talking with a a, a mother who runs a Girl Scout troop about there is a build your own merit badge program in the Girl Scout curriculum. And we were talking about literally using the books from the Boy Scouts to do some of the electronics and coding and do something equivalent in the Girl Scout curriculum that way. So a local Girl Scout or Boy Scout troop might be looking for volunteers. There's your local library. If you just want to, you know, say, hey, let's have a, uh, you know, computer teardown event. Your local makerspace might have something. You know, there are a lot of different community activities that you could find. And if there aren't any that you can find, then just, you know, get up a little bit of gumption and start one because people will rally around you quickly to make stuff happen for their children. 
How do you prevent burnout? You talked about at the beginning, like the school being really hesitant to work with you because they didn't know like what kind of commitment you were, you were going to make. And if you were going to disappear as a volunteer, how do you demonstrate that commitment? How do you keep going and how do you avoid burning out from over volunteering? Well, that's one of the great things about the way I've been doing this with by, you know, being an assistant to teachers in that, you know, there are times that are just completely impossible for me to make school one day. And uh, in fact, just last week, I was not able to be at school for an event that um, with a number of students were actually building a computer like chips and soldering irons and building a 1980s era Z80 computer. And I was unable to be there at short notice because of uh, events that happened at my work. So I actually dropped my toolkit off the day before, recorded a five minute YouTube video and posted that up. And the teacher showed that to the students and they ran with it. But the fact that I'm you know, there as an assistant means that there are times where I, you know, just can't be there. So try to take a secondary role as one way of dealing with burnout. For me, my feeling of burnout is uh, not when I'm working hard, but when I feel like I'm working hard without making progress. That's, I mean, frankly, one of the reasons I love Rails was that I was able to work so much harder because the the amount that I could do for my client with a given effort was so much greater. I will burn out if I'm in a team of five people and we're arguing over build tools all day long. Right. I'll burn out in less than eight hours if that's what I'm doing. And my volunteer work for me is exactly the opposite of burnout. I feel like it's recharging to me. There are times where, you know, I haven't been able to get to school for a week or, or haven't met with one of my students extracurricularly for a while. And I just feel like I need to do that. I need that recharge. So, I mean, maybe I'm not the person to ask about that. So um, at the end of every show, we'd like to reflect on what we've talked about and maybe think about changes that we want to make in our own lives or activities we want to start or provide a call to action to ourselves as well as our listeners. Um, Mandy, do you have any thoughts on today's episode? Yeah, I just, I'm really excited. I, this is something that I've wanted to get my daughter into for a while because she's shown interest. She really, like, she'll tell me her favorite subjects are math and science. And, you know, I'm not a programmer. I'm, I'm working on basic concepts and skills and stuff like that. But I got some really great resources out of today from you, Dave, and I can't wait to sit down and look at them. I also kind of wanted to see if there's anybody in the central or southern PA region that is listening to the show, please reach out to me because I'd love to do something with getting kids into technology and coding. Um, but like I said, I don't have the programming skill set. So um, if you need help, I, I'd be more than happy to get involved in some way, shape, or form. How uh, you, Sam? Um, yeah, so I've had this idea in the back of my head for years and years that it would be nice to go out and teach. And, uh, you know, since becoming a parent myself, it's become a little bit more front of mind that I'd like to go and help teach perhaps in the school that she will wind up in. But I hadn't really given it much thought beyond that. And it was it was really great, again, like you said, Mandy, to have just be made aware of the resources that are out there, because there's a lot more that I hadn't really uh, known about or even thought might be there. So when I do decide that I want to contribute and get into that, I now have some much better ideas about where to go and how to get started. And uh, usually getting started is the hardest part for me. So having that thing that I can at least chew on and go, okay, well, maybe I can make a call to the high school principal is going to be a good way to get started. So thank you. For me, I appreciated the opportunity to be reminded of and reflect on my own privilege growing up with access to computers in the home and access to computers in my school. And I can definitely see how that led to the 
very lucrative career that I have today. And I would love to find ways to get more kids from disadvantaged areas, the equipment and the education and curricula that they need to also pursue this career path, if that's something they're interested in. But you touched, Dave, on code as literacy. Um, I don't think you quite put it that way, but that's um, how I kind of boiled it down. And I think it's important to remember that not every kid who goes to a program like this is going to turn out to be a software engineer, but it's good for everyone to understand how the world works and how computers work because they are so such a dominant force in our lives. I also wanted to give a shout out to my company, GitHub, um, that has a is participating in a wonderful program that's put out by the Department of Housing and Urban Development called Connect Home, which actually puts technology in the hands of kids from underprivileged neighborhoods, um, inner cities, and so on. We spend millions of dollars on that program, and I think that's really great, and I would like to see more companies do that. Dave, do you have any reflections? Yeah, I do. First of all, uh, I should say uh, we didn't mention about um, GitHub today at all. I actually have some students using GitHub, and that was quite a challenge to get students who are doing personal projects independently for turn-in that then they never really touch again to get them to see why they would use something like GitHub. But now that I have some students that are doing year-long science research projects, they're using GitHub and they're understanding it. So it's great to have that breakthrough. We're going to have something for kids in the near future. I can't really talk about it, but that's uh, definitely on the minds of people at GitHub. Well, you have the student developer pack already, and that's phenomenal for my students. So my takeaway is that you know, I've always thought that one of the best ways to learn is to teach. It's why I started the uh, the Northern Virginia Java user group in the 90s and then the Ruby user group in the early 2000s. And um, teaching at the high school teaches me so much about my own career path. And then sitting here talking to you about it today is teaching me about my own teaching in ways that is causing me to think about and reflect on on what I'm doing. So I appreciate that opportunity to do this with you today. It's been um, really great having you on the show. I um, really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us and really appreciate the effort that you're putting in to expose kids to programming at a very, very early level. That's really great. Um, we're going to wrap up now. I want to say one more time, we are 100% listener funded at this point in time. If you would like to pledge to support the show, patreon.com slash greater than code. We're currently at $741 per month out of our $950 goal. And we are also open to corporate sponsorships. So if you value this podcast and would like to see us continue, you might want to talk to your company about um, supporting us as well. You'll get a 30 second spot to talk about your company, whether or not you're hiring. Of course you are. And, uh, um, the airtime to uh, to get your message out there. So thank you, Dave. Thank you, Mandy. Thank you, Sam. And that is it for this week's episode. Thank you all so much. 